0: David Platt once said, we desperately need each other in the daily fight to follow Christ in a world that's full of sin. If you read through the entire Bible, you'll find the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ spread throughout the scriptures from one end to the other. The Old Testament points to the coming of Jesus Christ. The gospels point to the life of Jesus Christ and everything after that points to the church of Jesus Christ. In other words, It's all about Jesus Christ. The message has never changed. However, the way that message gets delivered to the world, well, that's changed dramatically over time. First, it was through the story of creation, then through the story of God's people, then through the prophets, and then through Jesus himself and his disciples. And through all of that, we see the message of Christ being shared. And then in Acts 2... After sending His Holy Spirit to His followers from then until the second coming of Christ. In other words, from the time Jesus left this earth until He comes back again, the gospel message has been entrusted to the church. Okay, The the church is God's plan for spreading God's message. And there's no backup plan. We're it, which means we're united not only by a common spirit, but also by a common purpose. To make disciples of Jesus Christ by sharing his gospel. By the way, uh, sharing that common purpose also means we share a common enemy whose sole focus is to stop that message from being shared by attempting to destroy the church. The Apostle Peter warned the church be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5 8. That was a warning to all Christians in every age, that we have a common enemy who is constantly seeking ways to attack the church. And just as any enemy in a war will attack on many fronts, so too the devil tries to come against the church in as many ways as he can, which is why it's so important to answering the call of God on our lives that we learn to embrace a mutual reliance on one another our brothers and sisters in Christ, which Jesus himself modeled for us, right? After his baptism, the very first thing Jesus did to begin his ministry on this earth was to choose other people to participate in that ministry together with him. The very last thing he did before leaving this earth was to gather those same people and instruct them to go to the ends of the earth in order to bring together as many people as they could into that ministry with them. And of course, the entire journey between those two points, Jesus was teaching them exactly how to do that, how to carry out that ministry. But it was always together. In fact, everything Jesus taught them to do, he taught them to do it together. He taught them how to commune with God together. He taught them how to worship God together. He taught them how to fight the enemy of God together. He even taught them how to pray to God together. Jesus taught his followers how to serve God in so many different ways, but always together. In fact, you know, the only way Jesus never taught them to serve God was alone. Which wasn't a new development, by the way, for God's people in Jesus' day. The truth is from the very beginning and throughout all of human history, God's intention for his people has been for us to be with him and to serve him together with each other, not alone. The first, of the first human being, Adam. God said, it is not good that the men should be alone. Genesis 2:18. King Solomon, who was described in 1 Kings 4 as the wisest man alive, said, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Proverbs 18, 1. He also said, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. Again, as you read through the Gospels, all of Jesus' teachings and instructions were given to the disciples to be carried out together. Right? But why? Why is it so important? It's because that is the very essence and nature of who God is. Right? Before God created anything, including the angels, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was in fellowship with itself, which is why in Genesis one twenty six, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And there are some people, some scholars even, who say that God was referring to the angels or the sons of God when he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. But listen, we weren't created in the image of angels. No, we were created in the image of God, which is confirmed in the very next verse, Genesis one twenty seven. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, He created Him, male and female, He created them. Which is also true, by the way, when we're born again or made new. According to the Apostle Paul, he said, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 See, we were created in God's image, And we're commanded to be like God, to imitate God, which means you cannot fully reflect His image. You cannot be truly like God. You cannot accurately or fully imitate Him when you're alone. Why not? Because God is never alone. Even when the apostles abandoned Jesus, listen to what he said. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. John 16, 32, you see, built into the very essence and nature of God himself is fellowship, not isolation, which means we cannot be fully like him when we isolate ourselves from other believers. You understand, I'm not saying you can't ever be by yourself physically. It can be very healthy, I think, sometimes necessary for us to spend time away from other human interaction, just as Jesus did at times. But listen, even then, it's not to be alone. It's to be with God without distractions. Every time Jesus went out by himself, apart from the disciples, he went to be with the Father. Of course, we all need that in our lives. What I'm talking about is followers of Christ who alienate themselves from other followers of Christ, believers who avoid the church, not the building, but the people, the body of Christ. And I don't just mean in the physical sense either, because I know good and well, you can be in a room full of people and be utterly alone. You can attend church services and church events and church ministries and at the same time be so spiritually, emotionally, and relationally unengaged with those around you while you're there at those services and events and ministries that you might as well be there alone. Listen, some of you need to hear this today because as Christians we often have this attitude. In fact, and I I mention it often, I've heard believers my whole life say, you know, all I need is me and Jesus, which sounds great, except that's not what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus said. No, the Bible says you need Jesus and you need the person sitting next to you. Not for salvation, of course, that's between you and God, but to become the man or woman he created you to be, whether you like it or not, or agree with it or not, or are happy about it or not, God's word is clear. If you're going to live the life you were created and called to live, you will need Jesus And your brothers and sisters in Christ, because not one of you has been created or called to serve God alone. And so, in the previous chapter, we talked about our need a couple of weeks ago to learn to rely on God. That was the title of the message Rely on God. Today, we're gonna talk about our need to learn to rely on each other which we're going to witness in this next part of our story as we continue working our way through the book of Nehemiah. So let's turn there where we left off last time and continue reading. We'll begin at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imrit, built. So picking up the story where we left off last time, Nehemiah has traveled to Judah, where he rallied the people of God to rebuild Jerusalem, and the work has finally begun. And then for the next 30 verses, as an accurate historical record, he names the leaders and their families who rebuilt the different parts of the city walls and gates. Uh, By the way, it wasn't just men. Verse 12 says, Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Right, so this is all hands on deck, all the people of God working together, literally side by side to do what God has called them to do. So we're going to move ahead to chapter four in just a moment, rather than take the time to just read through all of the names of the families who participated in the work. But just before we go to chapter four, I want to highlight verse five in this chapter, which says, and next to them, the tacoits repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Okay, the scriptures spell out very plainly, as we'll see, that as followers of Christ, we're locked in a battle with the spiritual forces of evil that hold sway over much of this world. And one of the most effective strategies in any war, you, you military guys know this, is when one side is able to undermine the other from within their own ranks. Right? If one army can get a man on the inside of the opposing army, that one spy can often wreak more havoc than any full-on assault from the outside, which is a strategy that Satan has used against the church since the inception of the church. In fact, far more damage has been done to the church over the centuries from within than from any attack without. Right? Outside pressures cannot destroy the church unless we give in to them. The truth is you will rarely, if ever, find local churches that wither and die because of outside pressures. What you will very often find, however, among local churches that end up shutting their doors for good is something that happened within the church itself that ultimately led to its demise. You see, if the enemy can get a man or woman on the inside to do his bidding, he can do far more damage to the church that way than he can by attacking it. From without. And Nehemiah, as we'll see as we move through this story over the next few months, is facing both pressure from without and pressure from within. Author Tripp Prince said, We must never underestimate the cost of division within the body of Christ. As Jesus reminds us in the high priestly prayer, our unity is directly linked to the mission of God and is our testament to the unifying power of God's love in the face of hatred and division. All right, let's move on now to chapter 4 as the story continues. We'll read through the first 6 verses. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, "Why are these feeble Jews? What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day?" Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Now this switches back to Nehemiah. Here he's praying. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. During the reign of the the Persian Empire, the Arabs settled in the southern part of the Transjordan and the Negev as well. So they were the southern neighbors of the Jews. The Ammonites were the eastern neighbors who also had a foothold on the western bank of the Jordan. The Ashdodites were the western neighbors with their territory comprising the entire area that was once occupied by the Philistines. And to the north were the Samaritans with their leader, Sanballat. So Nehemiah paints a bird's eye view of the four neighboring provinces of the Persian Empire who all stood against the Jews. Okay, Uh, this was a grave situation. Judah was totally isolated and Sanballat, the ringleader of the opposition, knew it. And so he makes every effort to stop the building process by intimidating the Jews. Verse 2, he parades his army by while mocking them. Verse 3, he includes a visiting statesman who asks a string of sarcastic rhetorical questions, all intended to intimidate and humiliate the people of God for answering the call on their lives to rebuild the city. But it wasn't uh, just mocking and intimidation. There was a very real threat of war, as we'll see, on their doorstep, and the Jews are feeling the pressure. And so in verses 4 and 5, They pray a prayer in the form of a song. Probably it was sung by the workers while they worked based on the promises made by God in the Abrahamic covenant back in Genesis 12, which was, among other things, a promise to bless those who blessed Abraham's descendants and curse those who cursed them. And so here they are, The dream they've held for so long to rebuild Jerusalem is finally happening. And no sooner do they start, they find themselves literally surrounded by the enemy who is bent on stopping them. And how do they respond to the immense pressure of the insults from foreign leaders and to the presence of foreign armies and to the threat of a foreign invasion in the face of all of it? What do the Jews do? Verse 6. So we built the wall, facing intense scrutiny, mockery, humiliation, and unceasing danger for wanting to build the wall, they decide to build the wall. Despite the fact that the Jews were weak and vulnerable compared to their enemies, outnumbered, outgunned, completely surrounded, their decision to build the wall anyway makes Sanballat and his friends, in the words of Derek Kidner, suddenly appear quite small and shrill, dwarfed by the faith, unity, and energy of the weak. It was a defining moment for the people of God, a lesson learned about what can be accomplished when we learn to rely on each other even in the face of, especially in the face of great adversity, pressure. It's the same lesson we need to learn in the church today, to rely on each other when it's time to build. Because first of all, you understand God is always calling us to build as a part of His kingdom work, to build relationships to build families, to build marriages, to build churches, to build businesses, to build ministries, and on and on and on it goes, for the purpose of building his kingdom here on earth. Peter proclaimed the truth about who Jesus was, and as he did, Jesus responded, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, Matthew 16, 18. In other words, as you proclaim the gospel, I will build my church upon that proclamation. The Apostle Paul said we're God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 and 10. In Ephesians four eleven and 12, he said, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And then in Ephesians four sixteen, he said, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly when we're working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love and in first Thessalonians five eleven, he said encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing you get the point right We're commanded over and over again throughout Scripture as fellow workers with Christ to build His kingdom on earth. And yet that command is always, always given to the collective, the body of Christ. Why? Because we cannot answer the call to build alone. No, it takes all of us relying on each other when each part is working properly to do what God has called us to do. It's all hands on deck when it comes to kingdom building work, all of us working together. You know, when you're having a, a, a conversation with someone and they bring up something in that conversation that you happen to be intensely interested in, maybe it's a, a particular uh, car Or For me, that would be a motorcycle, right? Or a sport or location, some project you're working on, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe the boyfriend or girlfriend is the project you're working on. Uh, Maybe it's a particular piece of music or some famous person, right? Whatever. All it takes is for you to hear the word or that name that describes that object, that, that thing or activity or that place or that person. And all of a sudden, something changes inside of you, doesn't it? You're now engaged in that conversation in a different way, a different level than you were to begin with. You can feel maybe your pulse quicken a little, your ears perk up, your heart and mind engage in that conversation in a deeper way because you are heavily invested emotionally or physically or financially or maybe all of the above in that person or that place or that thing. Now imagine you're having that same conversation and someone says the word church. They bring up the subject of church. What do you think about in that moment? And does it have the same effect as some of those other things that you're intensely interested in? Or, or maybe, maybe it doesn't, maybe not so much, maybe not at all. Does the word church make you think of a program or ministry you're involved in or a particular place you go to on Sundays or a religious denomination or something that just wants your money or your free labor or your allegiance? Does the word church make you think of an activity or a building or a particular speaker or a style of music? Because the truth is, the church is none of those things. It may involve some of those things, but the church is us, all the men and women who belong to Christ. We are the church as we come together and function as one body, right? I say it all the time, the church isn't a dismembered body. We're a body functioning body when we're together you understand the church is supposed to be something you cannot live without something we're so passionate about that it invades every conversation and every gathering with friends something we love so much that we give our lives and all that we have to it freely and joyfully and generously something so vitally important to us that we would even die for it that's how we're supposed to feel about the church you know what that means? That's how we're supposed to feel about each other because we are the church. And I wonder whether or not we truly understand the power that we wield as the church when we're unified in that way. When we're so committed to Christ and to each other that we would literally die for one another if need be. Because listen, the power and authority that comes with that kind of unity among us, honestly, it's staggering. And I'll just tell you, when you're invested in the church, in your brothers and sisters in Christ, and then the subject of church comes up in conversation. Well, now you have my full attention. More importantly, when you have a group of believers who are that intensely committed to one another, then you belong to something that according to Jesus is an unstoppable force in this world, even if the whole world around you is against you. It's what we'll see in Nehemiah's life and calling in this story. And in fact, It's what we see played out all throughout Scripture when God's people learn to rely on each other. I love the story of Gideon, another great example. He's called by God to do something truly extraordinary, to lead God's people into battle against their enemies who had decimated the Israelites' land and livelihood for seven straight years. And at one point in the story, the Midianites are 135,000 battle-hardened soldiers strong, while Gideon had only 32,000 untested and under-resourced fighters. I mean, the odds are ridiculous, especially when you factor in the experience of the Midianites in battle and the inexperience of the Israelites, the resources and the weapons of the Midianites and the lack of both for the Israelites. And so the prospect of overcoming this massive army of 135,000 confident soldiers with nothing more than 32,000 dreadfully afraid, inexperienced, ill-equipped Israelites had overwhelmed Gideon emotionally and spiritually. He was nearly uh, paralyzed by fear and almost completely devoid of faith in the period leading up to the battle. But then God decides to raise the bar for Gideon even farther. And so through a couple of tests... God trims Israel's fighting force from 32,000 down to 300. Now, if the point of sending Gideon into battle was to defeat this massive, well-trained army, why would you do that? Why would you reduce Gideon's army to 300 men? Well, it's because God knew who Gideon needed with him and who he didn't need with him. Okay, Gideon didn't need 22,000 men who were too afraid to fight. And so after the first test, God sends 22,000 of them who were shaking in their sandals home. God also knew that Gideon didn't need another 9,700 men who didn't measure up to God's requirements, whatever the reason. So God sends another 9,700 of them home. And so of the 32,000 men who were there with Gideon to begin with, God sends 31,700 of them home. Why in the world would you do that it's because God knew what Gideon needed more than anything was men who would stand with him, rely on each other, and fight through the most difficult time of their lives, together, unified, united by a common cause and a common call, risking their very lives for one another, if need be. That's what Gideon needed, no matter how large or small a number of people it actually was, which ended up being 300 men. But you see, that's all that Gideon needed, because no matter what, Those 300 men were with him. And so far better to have 300 brothers who would stand together no matter what came their way than more than 30,000 who would turn and run away at the first sign of trouble. Listen, what Gideon needed then, what Nehemiah needed then, it's exactly what you and I need today. Brothers and sisters that we can rely on as we answer the call of God in our lives. You see, when you're facing overwhelming obstacles in your life, you don't need an endless sea of people in your life who claim to be Christians but live without conviction, who claim to love the church but only when it suits them, who claim to have your back until you run into trouble. No, when your back is against the wall and all hell has come against you, what you need are men and women who understand the cost of following Christ, who understand the commitment of being the church, and who understand the risk of fighting with you and in the very face of that risk, willingly choose to stay through all of it and fight by your side. Come what may you see when someone brings up the word church in conversation what should come to mind are the brothers and sisters in this family who are ready to die for you if necessary that's what it means to be a part of the church and when you have a group of believers like that people who are committed to christ and to one another i'm telling you we're unstoppable and here's why it matters Because whatever it is that God has called you to in this life, whatever it is He's created you for, you cannot get there in this lifetime alone. You cannot accomplish in this life what God has created and called you to accomplish on your own. You cannot. It's why He instituted the church, which is why He gave His great commission To the church, which is why he gave his Holy Spirit to the church, which is why his Holy Word was written to the church. Because just as Gideon was never meant to go into battle alone, and just like Nehemiah was never meant to rebuild alone, neither are you. Rick Warren said, you cannot fulfill God's purposes by yourself. God wired us to need each other. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 7 to the end of the chapter. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. We prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space, behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we're separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you are here, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. So with the prospect of war against God's people looming, Nehemiah wastes no time mustering his people to arms. And of course, whereas his assessment of the state of the city was done in secret, you'll remember back in chapter 1, because he didn't want those among them who were against them to report his activity to their enemies outside of the city, This announcement for the people to prepare for war was done publicly so that all would hear because Nehemiah wanted word to get back to their enemies that they would not retreat from the city. And yet because his workers were spread thin all along the length of the wall over a great distance, an attack on them could be easily successful. And of course, Nehemiah knew that. So he comes up with a plan where a trumpeter would follow him around as he traveled along the wall checking on the work so that wherever an attack might occur, the trumpeter would sound the trumpet and all the Jews would know to rally to that location. It's an ingenious plan to cope with the problem of men working far from one another spread out all along the wall. Another example of the fact, by the way, that they were committed to one another, not just to those in their immediate vicinity or their families or their immediate clans, but to all the people of God. And so what Nehemiah, when he says, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us of course, he's not just saying to the Jews, you know, we don't have to fight, right? But he's saying God will fight with us as we fight for each other. Not to mention the blowing of the trumpet in a wartime setting in Nehemiah's day was a well-established call to arms. And, And beyond that, the people coming from the rural areas and villages outside of the city to help with the work during the day inside the city, they preferred spending the night back in their homes, but that created a vulnerable situation of movement into the city early in the morning and out of the city late in the evening. It also created a dangerous situation for everyone else because it wasn't easy to check on the people arriving each day because of the sheer volume of workers showing up, which meant enemy spies, even enemy combatants, could sneak in among the returning workers each day into the city. Furthermore, with many of the Jews leaving the city at night, The city's much more vulnerable to attack without as many men there to defend it. And so part of Nehemiah's plan was to keep the workers in the city day and night. In other words, don't return to your homes, just stay here in order to guard the city at night and work during the day. And they were so committed to the task that they slept with their clothes on in order to be ready to fight at a moment's notice. The point is, we not only need to learn to rely on each other when we build, But we need to rely on each other when it's time to protect what we've built. Okay? Listen, God is a creator. The enemy is a destroyer. God builds his kingdom in and through us. The enemy wants to tear that kingdom down. And so everything that God calls you to build, the enemy will try and tear it back down. And I'm telling you, you need other people to help you protect it. Okay, as, as, Christians, uh, as a Christian, you were designed, created, equipped, and called to fight in a war, to engage in a spiritual battle, not against the world, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, as the Apostle Paul put it in Ephesians 6.12. In other words, you were intentionally placed by God on this earth at this specific point in time in history to make history by fighting for God's mission to save this world through the church as a member of His church, His body. And I've talked to you before about the difference between surrender and submission. In fact, there's an entire sermon I wrote about it, and I'll probably share that with you again sometime soon, because it's so critical to the health and strength of the church that we understand the difference between surrendering to Christ and submitting to Christ. You understand, the idea of surrendering your life to Christ is not only not in the Bible, it's actually an unbiblical concept. I've been told my whole life to surrender my life to Christ. We sing songs about it. We're told to raise our hands as a a universal sign of surrender. That is not in the Bible. You can't find it because it's not in there. We're never commanded to surrender our lives to Christ. What we're told over and over and over and over again through Scripture is to submit our lives to Jesus Christ, and there is a profound difference. It's vital to the health of the church and the mission that we stop surrendering our lives to Christ and instead submit our lives to Christ. You understand? Because surrender is an act of resignation. Submission is a call to action. When a soldier surrenders, he bows before the enemy king He lays his weapons down, and he says, I give up, and raises his hands in a universal sign of surrender. When a soldier submits, he bows before his king. He picks his weapons up, and he says, what are my orders? One is an act of resignation. The other is a call to action. God never calls us to surrender to him. In fact, we're all down here singing songs about I surrender all and lifting our hands and the whole time he's beating the drum of war. Stop surrendering. Pick up your weapons and fight. And those believers and followers of Christ. Listen, we're never called to surrender. God is calling us to fight to fight for what to fight for lost souls in this world, to fight for those who cannot fight for themselves, to fight for our marriages, to fight for our children, to fight for our families, to fight for the gospel, to fight for the church, to fight for each other. In fact, as a follower of Christ, you should be fighting for the lives of other people just as passionately and purposefully as you fight for your own life. Not just when the fight comes to you either, but we're to be on the offensive by taking that fight to our enemy. I, I've shared this occasionally with you as well, but it bears repeating from time to time because when Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus replied on this rock, on this profession of faith in Christ, on this gospel, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew sixteen eighteen. If you read the phrase, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it in the ancient Greek, the literal rendering of that phrase is the gates of Hades, shall not withstand it. It's a very significant difference because when you read it the way most English translations have it, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It sounds like Jesus was saying no matter what the enemy comes at you with, He will not prevail against you. But when you read it in the original Greek, it's the other way around. I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not withstand it. Jesus, look, he was not saying we will be able to withstand the enemy. No, he was saying the enemy will not be able to withstand us. Because his will for the church is for us to be on the offensive, not huddled together in fear, hoping we can survive the attacks of the enemy. It's the other way around. The enemy is supposed to be running from us, unable to withstand the onslaught of Christians who are relentlessly taking ground back from him, tearing down his strongholds and snatching lost people from the fires of hell before it's too late. Jesus was saying, don't wait for the fight to come to you. No, you take the fight right up to the gates of hell. And no matter what happens, no matter how beat up or bloodied you may be, storm the gates of hell because there's no power in hell that can withstand the power of the church. Actually, it makes the very next verse, the very next thing Jesus said makes a lot more sense. Verse 19 I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, here, here are the keys. Get to work. Can you see the difference? It's an offensive battle strategy against our enemy, not a defensive one. When the enemies of Israel surrounded Nehemiah and the rest of the Jews and threatened to kill them if they did not stop working, what did the Jews do? Verse 15, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. Verse 17, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. You see, when the enemy threatened to tear down what they'd built, they didn't stop working or cower in fear in hopes they weren't attacked. They didn't surrender before God and say, come help us. No, they strapped their weapons on and got back to work. Listen, that only works when you have an offensive mindset, a mind to work, as Nehemiah puts it, a determination to answer the call of God in your life with other people that God has put in your life, no matter what comes against you. That's when the church you and I, become unstoppable. And of course, the enemy knows that. He's not stupid. He knows he can't win a head-to-head fight with the church. In fact, he's guaranteed to lose that fight every single time, which is why he tries to divide us. Because if he can fool us into fighting each other, well, that's just as good as us surrendering to him. And that's the strategy he's been employing against the church ever since the church began. It shows up in the story of Gideon. It shows up in the story of Nehemiah. It shows up in the story of David. It's all through the Old Testament and the New. We see in many instances the churches that Paul had planted, particularly across the island of Crete, they were turning against themselves. There was infighting, division, injustice that was not only commonplace, but it was threatening to destroy the local churches there, effectively taking them completely out of the fight that they were meant to be fighting. Because instead of focusing on the enemy, they were focusing on each other. So Paul writes a letter to Titus instructing him to travel across the island recruiting leaders who were committed to the gospel and to each other and then to get them ready to fight. To fight for what? To fight for the soul of the church so that the church could fight for the souls of the lost. You understand, we're called to build and we're called to fight for what we build. Not against each other but against the gates of hell itself, because the enemy is a destroyer seeking to tear down what we're called to build. But together, we are an unstoppable force for good and God's glory. And yet again, the enemy knows he can't stop us as long as we are together, physically and spiritually unified. Which is why everything that Jesus taught us to do, he taught us to do it together, to commune with God together. To worship God together, to fight the enemy of God together, to pray to God together, to make disciples of Christ together, to reach the lost for Christ together, to mourn together, to celebrate together, if need be, to suffer together, and to serve together. Jesus teaches us how to serve God in so many different ways, but it's always together. In fact, the only way he never teaches us to serve God Is alone. That's why we were created to rely on each other because we need each other to answer his call in our lives. Let's pray.